podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Tashinsky, and Andrew Hunter-Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that's my fact. My fact this week is that in the 1910s, animal dances, including the camel walk, the turkey trot, the crab step, the chicken flip, and the kangaroo dip were so controversial they were banned at the White House, condemned by the Pope, and warned against by doctors. Wow. Why were they so bad? Were they sexy? I bet they were sexy dances. They always are, aren't they? I watched the turkey trot. You could argue there's a bit of sex in there, but ultimately you just look like an idiot, I think. I mean, what could yeah. sound sexier than the crab step? It's very <laughs> raunchy stuff. The chicken flip. There are all these yeah. no, The sloth squeeze was another one. Yeah. The bull weevil wiggle. That was another one. <laughs> it doesn't exactly sound like twerking. It's it's they're quite they're very tame from they were mod- tame, to yeah. But they, they anyway. were sort of that moment where it felt like people were liberating and this was seen as as people going out and having a wild time. And they really did take it seriously. So a number of US cities really cracked down on it. And in Boston, um John F. Kennedy's grandfather, who was the mayor, Ordered it, uh, ordered it so that there was a matron and policeman posted to every dance hall in the city, and they would crack down on anyone they saw doing that. They had people, um, just police forces, out arresting whole groups. It was a bit of a mania. A lot of the reports at the time said they were, to be fair to the people banning them, actual imitations of the sex acts of these animals. Now, it is quite difficult to believe that when you watch, for instance, a turkey <laughs> trot, which sort of involves jumping, hopping sort of to one side and then hopping to the other side and then flapping your wings a bit. Yeah. But they were meant to be kind of reenacting sex between these creatures. It feels to me that if that's the way turkeys have sex, then we'd all be going hungry at Christmas. <laughs> there will be not many baby turkeys around. Well, as no doubt people would mention, I don't think any turkey that we eat has sex, does it? I think. Oh my god! Imagine, oh. imagine if the turkey trot dance was someone extracting some semen from your penis <laughs> and then putting it in a little test tube and then shoving it into your partner. It would be the turkey base instead of the turkey trot as a dance. I really like what you said about the White House, Dan. This is amazing that in 1913, there was going to be an inaugural ball for President Woodrow Wilson, obviously very exciting. And then it was cancelled because just because of the risk that people might start doing the turkey trot. And he he denied that, but the ball was cancelled. It didn't go ahead. And so there was no chance for anyone to do the, the grizzly bear. Yeah, he denied it probably because it wasn't true. Surely that wasn't the reason. It was on the front page of the New York Times. So the headline was Wilson banned ball fearing turkey trot. And that was on Jan 13th, 1913. And it was a big story. But obviously, yeah, he he denied that that would happen. But it was it was a real story. It was from White House insiders. So (laughs) I, I reckon he probably did ban it because of that. It was probably like, I don't love spending all this money. And he might have been specifically worried about his daughters who are massive fans of animal dances. Mm. So he knew, he knew the underworld of animal dancing. <laughs> so one 
person who intervened in this debate was the ex-president of the University of Missouri's medical school. He was a guy called Dr. S. Grover, and he claimed in 1915 that it led to insanity to do these dances. He said... Many of the cases of insanity developed in the United States within the last few years may be traced to modern eccentric dances. One-tenth of the insane of this country have lost their mind on account of troubles which may commonly be traced <laughs> to modern dances. That's wild. One in ten! They also said that it would give you some kind of foot illness, didn't it? It was like There was like a turkey trot <laughs> foot or turkey trot in step or something like that, which would make you lame if you did this too much. Um, but then some doctors said it was good for you. So there was a doctor called Dr. A.A. A. Brill, who sounds like a really good doctor, and he said that modern dances should be considered beneficial and they're as soothing to the pot place as rocking is to an infant. Oh, good on so, you. like, when you're rock and rolling, That's you're nice. also kind of being rocked like a baby. Mm. It's like everything. It's probably best done yeah. in moderation, isn't it? I'm sure if you did dance for... 14 hours a day you would actually get quite sore feet and i think that's absolutely fair enough i just think it's unlikely many people were doing that yeah and it was i think it was tango foot was the precursor to that which was a big scare and there was a really nice news article from 1914 which pointed out that no sooner has a new entrancing diversion come in than someone appears to forbid it and it pointed out that tango foot is the modern version of bicycle knee and automobile face, oh, yeah. uh, which I think I feel like we may have talked about those before. Um, also, movie eye, he said. People used to tell us we'd all get movie eye from the <laughs> cinemas and we haven't. And it was quite a good article to remind you that whenever there's a new trend, everyone always says this is going to ruin us. Yeah, I always get uh. Pokemon Shin and Fortnite anus. <laughs> we've got anyone binging us watch out for podcast earlobe uh, oh yeah i want to know what fortnite anus is well the problem is people sit down playing um, video games for too long right and they sit in the same place and it can give you problems like You're piles kidding. and hemorrhoids no i'm no 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 i'm making it all up <laughs> oh okay i've just started playing fortnite and i need to know if my can, you're allowed safe. for no more than two weeks after that it's a problem um one of these animal dances survives today which is so exciting because i'd never heard of the bunny hug or the there were others called the uh like the, the buzzard loaf <laughs> there was one called the fish walk did you hear that one i mean that is the one thing that fish don't do yeah insane but the the one that survived into the modern age is the bunny hug because it kind of became oh. the fox trot and the foxtrot was coined and popularised around the same time as all these other dances. And it was refined a bit. And, you know, there are various sources as to who exactly came up with it. But it's basically a slightly more neat version of the bunny hug. But it's not named after the fox, right? It was named after a guy called Fox. That's what most people think these days. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there was a guy called oh. Fox who was like the guy who popularised the foxtrot. And they think, although it makes much more sense if there was a, you know, a grizzly bear <laughs> jump and a bunny hug, it makes sense that it would be named after a fox. All these dances were named after people. The the turkey trot was named after Sir Leonard <laughs> Turkey. And yeah. yeah, well, the bunny hug, there is a famous version of it being danced in a movie starring a man called John Bunny, but he didn't invent it. I think that just okay. happened to be a coincidence. Oh, really? Yeah, he's one of the most well-known comedians of his day in America. I've never heard of him, uh, but he's got a huge what was he filmography. Called? John Bunny. Not Jack Benny. You just misread <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, John Bunny. So speaking of band dances, have you guys heard of the cushion dance? 
Mm, no, I haven't. This is, this, is the, <laughs> this is the 16th, 17th century version of the turkey trot because it was a scandalous, sexy dance. Um, what it is is you run around the place with a cushion for a bit. You dance around holding a cushion and then you put it down in front of uh, a woman and she will kneel on it and then you give, give you her... Give a blowjob. No, James. <laughs> no. You give her a kiss on the cheek and then... You pick up the cushion and you dance around a bit more and it's very innocent and sweet. It's not as sexy as I thought it was going to be. No. It, again, I, I sort of assumed the blowjob. I mean, that's what you're led to believe no. by the description. It's a completely innocuous dance, but it was very scandalous at the time. Oh, God, I'm, bl- I'm blushing over Zoom. It's so annoying. <laughs> Take your camera down. <laughs> Did the woman get to get up before you took the cushion out, or was it a sort of tablecloth trick thing where you spun her off the cushion? No, I, I think she's. St- I don't know. Maybe she gets the cushion then. I don't, I haven't actually got the full mechanics of it worked out. Maybe it's like past the cushion, and then she gets to put the cushion down in front of uh, someone else who gives her cunnilingus. No, okay, we have to stop this. But there was a worry, right? I read about this this uh, cushion dance, which they were saying that a story that in 1633, the idea is that it would lead to sexual acts. And a couple were accused, I think, after maybe having done this dance and taking it a bit further, of having sex against the village Maypole. And Against um, the really? Maypole? Yeah. That's going to be <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. You're going to end up with Maypole anus. <laughs> <laughs> The only reason they were found out was because apparently there was a bell on top of it, which they didn't know about, which was alerting the neighbour. <laughs> no, no. Oh That's goodness. the story, all right? If I had to write that up in a 16th century newspaper, I would make the headline Maple Sauce. Okay? So it's like a pun on maple sauce, oh, and, but it's the saucy yes. thing happening up against the Got maple. It. Did they have maple sauce back then? No, they didn't. I guess it... Wow, so you would have been going to... What year was it? What year was it? 1633. Yeah, they had maple sauce. sauce. Really? It's it's always called maple syrup, so I don't know why we're even talking about maple (laughs) syrup. The animal dances were part of the ragtime genre, really, weren't they? Uh, It was just part of the much broader ragtime era, which is basically the the first jazz or the precursor to jazz. It's the first time you started having syncopated, ragged rhythm. And the story of ragtime is just, it's kind of cool. It's this Scott Joplin, who's the king of ragtime. He'd been born to a former enslaved person who used to play the violin for plantation parties. So that's where he got his musical skill. And he died eventually in 1917, I think, of syphilis. And he died really upset that he'd never been able to be famous for a serious music. And today oh. he gets 200,000 listens a month on Spotify, wow. which is just such wow. a nice thing to not be able to tell him. Yeah, and he he will be, I guess he'll be able to earn 15 cents from those 200,000 listens. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, at the turn of the 20th century, that will have bought him a lot of stuff, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So yeah. the, the problem yeah. is not that Spotify isn't paying people enough, it's that they're not paying people 100 years ago. Oh, well, I think we've just about guaranteed we still get to be hosted. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, the conga was illegal in Cuba for a while. I don't think it still is. Might be. This was due to a politician called um, Desiderio Arnaz II. Uh, And the reason was because it had come over to Cuba from Africa uh, and they thought that it had lots of immoral gestures and semi-naked people doing the conga everywhere. Yeah. Like at weddings. Yeah, that conga, right, yeah, you know, yeah, where yeah. you hold da, on to da, the da, waist da, of da, someone da. behind her. Yeah, yeah, da, yeah. Da, 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 da. Now yeah. we do the blowjob. Uh, no. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Um, so it was banned by this politician, uh, but then the politician ended up being um, put in prison, like politicians often do in some countries. Uh, and the son of the politician, called Desi Arnaz, he fled to America and then became like the king of the Conga. Like he went around the whole of America, touring, going on TV, going to all the different cities, teaching them the conga. And what I like to think is that when he went from one city to the other, everyone just followed him and did the conga with him from, you know, L.A. to San Francisco to Seattle. You can see the king of conga coming from a long way away if he's on his way into town. <laughs> very impressive if you managed to make a living out of teaching people the conga because I would say it is at maximum my one lesson dance unless it's got a lot yeah, of lessons I lost in it 300 million people in America that's, that's a lot of lessons <laughs> yeah and you didn't even know you are supposed to take your clothes off Andy so you always have a lesson too <laughs> okay it is time for fact number two and that is James Okay, my fact this week is that there is a type of pasta that only three women in the world know how to make. Ooh. Um, Will we have heard of it? Is it fusilli? It's not going to be spaghetti, is it? It's not going to be... (laughs) (laughs) They're amazingly productive, like they're kingpins. You will have heard of it because you've spent the last couple of days researching about it. (laughs) But I think that people at home will not have heard of it. So this is called soufilendeu literally threads of god and it's a sardinian pasta uh, and it's made once a year for the feast of san francisco uh, and there is basically a group of women who have always been able to make it and they pass the recipe down to their daughters who pass it down to their daughters who pass it down to their daughters um but there are only three women left who know how to do it really um one of them is a lady called paula abreni uh, and her niece and her sister-in-law all know how to do it, but her daughters aren't really that interested. They kind of know the technique, but it's really, really complicated, and they're not particularly good at it. And because all these three women who are um, doing it are all kind of, I wouldn't say old, but getting that way, you know, in the 50s and 60s, mm. um, the people are a little bit worried that this might die out. So mm. we need to get more people learning quick. And we tried to teach Jamie Oliver, but he just couldn't hack it. Well, this is this is, the, this is the weird thing about it. It's that it's not even like it's a secret recipe. It's not something that they're hiding. They're constantly trying to teach it to people, including Jamie Oliver. And after a few hours, they're like, nah, bullshit. I'm not doing this. Are we it's serious? That Jamie Oliver's tried, yeah. to, tried to learn yeah, it? Yeah, he tried to do it. He tried to do it for two hours and gave up. Wow. Yeah. It's So for the people at home, I'll tell you how to do it because I know how to do it. Basically, you get some semolina wheat, you get some water, you get some salt, you knead it and knead it and knead it. And then at just the right moment, which is the main difficult part, then you put it into loads and loads of really, really, really fine strings. Uh, You get 256 of these filaments and you put them all together and then kind of mesh them all up and then cut it up. And then that's your pasta. And then you put it with some tasty sheep's broth and some pecorino cheese, bish bash bosh. That's basically a HelloFresh recipe that I've given you there, isn't it? Yeah, it went a bit Jamie Oliver at the end when he said bish bash bosh (laughs) and he said pucker it's like that that is the thing if you do get a hello fresh uh and it is the um, (laughs) sous filandeu meal it will take you exactly 
48 years to do yeah. this. <laughs> Although it wouldn't be. It would be one of those annoying recipes because that's just the prep. So it would say cook time, 12 minutes. And then at the very end, it would say prep time, 10 years. A lifetime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. actually lots of people know how to make it it's just the fact that only three people can make it yeah it's really really difficult because you just yeah. need to get it at exactly the right moment um it's the elasticity of the dough that you need to get perfectly right because if you don't do it perfectly you can't make these threads thin enough mm. and you can only do it from playing with the dough and just knowing from generation on generation and generation and knowledge to knowledge to knowledge, just knowing the exact moment to do it. But the other thing is it's given an impression that it's much harder to learn because, you know, Jamie Oliver stopped after two hours. I think it's fair enough that he didn't master it in two hours. This has been yeah. a generational thing that's passed yeah. on. That's, you know, you need to. Because weeks. if you're Jamie Oliver, if you're Jamie Oliver, you can, in that time, you could have made eight of your 15 minute meals. It's an inefficient <laughs> way of cooking. <laughs> I did read, because these women, they're, as you said, James, right, they're in the same family. Mm. So one of their male relatives is currently one of the Luke Skywalker figures who is in the process of learning how to make it to yeah. their Yoda. Ah. Um, he's called, he's obviously also, I guess, Sardinian. He's called Leo Gilsomino, and he's Aussie. Um, well, he's Australian. Well, he lives in Australia now. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's in he's their family. So I, I don't know when he moved to Australia or when the family moved, but... Yeah, they they've given him a little masterclass, and um, he has a certificate, but I think he's still in the yeah. So they basically it's kind of a tradition where they have these kind of matrilineal or matriarchal cuisines, which you do pass on from mother to daughter to daughter to daughter. Um, but because they're so worried about this dying out, they have recently said, "Okay, we're going to let men do it as well," uh, and they are trying to teach more and more people. I actually read this article in the BBC. I think it was in 2016 so it could be possible that few people have picked it up since then but if they have they won't be nearly as good as these three women who absolutely smash it every time because mm, they don't have the special sense yeah. is that you know we've done how um you know we have more than five senses is the special ability to feel <laughs> pasta right, there that's is that. the, i don't think that's, that's an x-men character we're gonna see Covered up in future marvel <laughs> movies <laughs> actually i just thought of something which is um, that you know how we were talking about maple sauce earlier on, Andy. Yep. <laughs> yes. Well, the related food, maple syrup, is also um, was traditionally a thing that passed from mother to daughter to mother to daughter, um, because in the first peoples tribes of um, Canada, you the men would often go out hunting and the women would be in charge of all of the planting and and stuff like that, and the maple syrup came in that um, territory. And so you would, as a woman, you would go to your maple grove and you would get the syrup every year, which would give lots of energy to your to your tribes. Um, but you would pass on the knowledge to your daughter and you would even pass on your groves to your daughter as well. So wherever your grove of maples was, that would be yours through generations, through generations, through generations. So there are quite a few of these kind of matrilineal cool. cuisines around the world. And you'd pass, that would be you'd pass on the knowledge of you make a hole in the tree and wait for the stuff to come out of it. Because I like, did the women tell the men it was a really complicated process it's the equivalent, involving Anna, dozens it's the equivalent, of ingredients? It's the equivalent of the conga king passing it on to his conga son. Yeah. You know? <laughs> He's next in line, literally. Yeah. First she puts a hole in the tree, then you wait for the sap to come out. No, because actually there's more to it with maple syrup. Oh, you've got to concentrate it a little bit. You've, you've got to lose some of the fluids. It. You have to leave it out overnight so it freezes and all the water comes to the top and then you skim off the water and then you boil it to get rid of more of the water. It's like, yeah. that's what my mum told me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just on pasta shapes, oh, yeah. do, you, do you guys know 
you know the tortelloni, the little wrapped up parcel thing? Uh, yeah, yeah although I think I call it tortellini. Oh, I'm sorry, tortellini. Sorry, sorry, tortellini. That shape is supposedly based on Lucrezia Borgia's navel. And you know Lucrezia Borgia oh. of the famous poisoning Bo- aristocratic Borgia family. Mm. She was staying in an inn uh, in Italy and the innkeeper um, was so excited to have this beautiful aristocratic lady in his inn that he crept up to the keyhole to have a, to have a perv. But all he could see was the navel, through, her navel through oh. the door. But what a navel for! And he rushed down to the kitchen to recreate it in pasta form. That's, a, that's a terrible outie she had, isn't it? <laughs> It's an absolutely fucked up umbilical cord cutting right there. <laughs> and he um, also, the next day, he went up and saw her husband and invented the Bologna sausage, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why past has so many different shapes? Um, no. Well, I, I think people think they know, or the theory is that the reason it does, and it is a ridiculous number, so there are more than 300 pasta shapes and I think 1,300 different pasta names. And it's partly because it was so it was such rivalry throughout Italy. So some of the earliest Italian guilds were pasta guilds, the vermicelli mm. and the macaroni. And um, you'd have lots of little different localities trying to rival each other's pasta quality with their own pasta. And so you made it into one into a bow tie and then you'd make your own spiral to be like, our spirals are better than their bow ties. And really? it was very heated. And they used to get so, I mean, they got so competitive that the Pope had to step in a few times, I think, between Pastor Gill. <laughs> wow. And he ruled, in the 1400s, he ruled that pasta making, illegal pasta making would be punished by a fine and three lashings of a whip because, you know, if you're not allowed, if you're not in the guild that's allowed to make that twirly pasta, then you're going to be beaten. I'll tell you what, I, I didn't really appreciate it until we did the research for this episode how busy the Pope's life actually is. He's just mm. constantly banning pasta shapes or turkey trot dances. The guy's, <laughs> yeah. the guy's furious, calling out stuff. <laughs> He's got a lot on. Yeah, there was actually um, with what you were saying with these sort of um, these guilds and so on. It, it went a bit further in the Renaissance courts. There was there's one particular pasta shape which is corsetti, which um, the idea is that it's imprinted with the coat of arms of the royal families that would eat it. So you would have these these pieces of pasta wow. that would each have the coat of arms to where you were eating on your plate, which is pretty extraordinary. I love that. As oh, a, nice. Yeah, because they're all, they're all very... There's this great book um, called The Encyclopedia of Pasta. I don't know if you guys read about it in the course of this research, uh, by Oretta... What's it about? <laughs> uh, Oretta Zanini de Vita is her name, and she's went round Italy just asking every local person from a different town, city, village about the story behind a different kind of famous local pasta. And she created this encyclopedia. So it's a real first-hand encyclopedia. And it's got all the stories about how the shapes came about. There's the uh, Ave Maria pasta, which is a great little one. It's simply, it's not anything to do with the shape. It's about the timing of what you cook it for. So you chuck it into the boiling water. And if you say a Hail Mary, that's how long you cook it for, the Ave Maria um, and there's a, apparently a whole trinity oh. of different pastas uh, with the different lengths uh, that you say the prayer to that will be the perfect cooking. doesn't feel like a particularly long amount of time to cook pasta to say the how, Hail Mary. I, doesn't I don't all. know how long it takes to say a Hail Mary. Okay. Hail Mary, follow grace, the Lord is with thee. Dressed out thou amongst women and best in the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray to us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Do you, you have, have to say very, that quickly? Oh, I think very your pasta is very al dente. Al dente. <laughs> 
<laughs> James would be the most annoying priest as he's powering through the entire sermon. I, I had <laughs> to go to a lot of confessions in my time and had to get through a lot of Hail Marys. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that every hour, the buglers of Krakow have to climb 272 steps, play five notes, then walk back down again. (laughs) And this is a a job that you can have if you're a bugler and you live in Krakow. Um, They have this church called St. Mary's Basilica, and since 1392, uh, on and off, they've been doing this thing where every hour there's a bugle call from the top. Um, it's, it's called amazing. St. Mary's Fanfare. It's only got five notes in it, so actually it's it's not... It goes up and down a bit, and it takes about, I don't know, half a minute to play. So it goes up and down, but only on those five notes. Um, and you play the tune to each point of the compass, and um, and then you stop, and then you go back down again, and then the next <laughs> hour you climb back up again. But actually, don't you stop the fourth time you do it, you stop halfway through, I read. Um that's because in 1241 there was a bugler who was like telling about some Mongols who were attacking the city, and he was shot by an arrow uh, halfway through his bugle. And so, in honor of this guy, they they kind of stopped the last bugle. Well, yeah. that's the story. Yeah, but there's a lot of stories about Krakow. I learned, yeah. <laughs> which we might get to in a bit. But go on. Well, it's first recorded in 1928, and from 1241, that's obviously quite a gap before anyone wrote it down. So, and it's first recorded by an American author who may have been locals may have played a trick on him, but it might also have been an oral legend before that. It's just that there isn't much written record. But there was actually a trumpeter who did die on duty in 1901. So only about 20 years before this guy wrote the story down. And he had played the tune three out of four times because you do it to each point of the compass. So he did it three times, but then he died of a heart condition before he could play it the fourth time. So that might be where that sort of fed into Mm. local myth. And yeah. Yeah. That must have been such a weird moment for the town when you're waiting. You're so used every hour to hearing these four. And you're like, what? Go, but I thought wasn't it even? Um, did you say the first mention of the bugler is 1928, or the first mention of this legend is 1928? The, the Mongol thing, the bugle thing's been going for donkey's years. Yeah, because I read that the bugle thing even they only used to do it sort of once a day until the until oh, the 20th really? century, and then suddenly mm. they decided to torture this guy by ramping up to once every hour. <laughs> there is a t- they're they're in a squad, so I think you do you have to be a fireman by the way to have this job. That's just part of the conditions for entry these days. So the reason this is um, current now is because they've just announced they're recruiting for a new one. And they've had their first ever application from a woman for the position. So great social progress is being made now. If um, she gets it. <laughs> if she gets it, yeah. If she gets it. Um, but it's for the really, audition process. Oh, it's crazy. It's insane. You got to, in order to become a bugler for, uh, for the church, you need to go through a whole process of doing chin-ups. You need a beep fitness test. Um, they have a medicine ball tossing thing that you need to do, and you need to scale a 20-meter ladder at an angle of 75 degrees <laughs> to ensure that you're not afraid of heights. But I would have thought that all these things, if you're a fireman, you probably would already be able to blow up ladders, wouldn't you? No? You would hope. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I've got to say, I have been to Krakow on a stag do once, and my, I think I might be right, right about saying this, is the square is basically just a load of bars all the way around it, with mostly, when I went there, just full of stag do's. So they're just 
that's that seems to be the only people who are enjoying these bugles. Is it Market Square? Is it the main, um, it's the main square, isn't it? Actually, I think square, I, yeah. I remember hearing it when I was in Krakow. Mm. Market Square was the biggest square, biggest medieval square in Europe, I think, wasn't it? It was. It got it looks UNESCO Heritage sort of it was one of the very first places to get UNESCO Heritage, I think. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. It's really big and really cool. And this St. Mary's Tower is quite famous because it's got two um, towers that are slightly different heights. Uh, and I know Andy's going to tell me this isn't true now, but I'm going to tell the story of why this <laughs> happened. So um, they had the church there and there was a guy uh, who was in charge of Krakow at the time who was called Duke Boroslaus the Modest. Okay, and he's like, we need some new towers here. Not too big, because I'm modest, but we need some new towers here. We need two new towers. And they tried to find the people to do it and they got two brothers um, one of whom was going to do one tower and one who would do the other tower. Uh, one of the brothers did his tower and then the other brother did his tower slightly bigger and the brother with the shorter tower got really jealous and so killed his brother um, for doing such a bigger tower. And then he could have made his tower back to the equal height, but then he felt so guilty about killing his brother that he didn't do it anymore. You're going to tell me that's not true either, Andy. I'm not going to say that. No way. No. Sounds <laughs> it's, pro bit. it's probably not true. <laughs> well, Krakow doesn't, has doesn't of... make up for killing your brother. It... I'll tell you that. If I was murdered, but then I found out that the person didn't actually go through with the stupid bet we had, <laughs> it's still not okay to murder you. No, you're right. <laughs> but there are great stories of Krakow. And I'm mm. James, the only reason I'm not going to tell you that your one isn't true is because <laughs> I, the only other one I know is about of Krakow is about the dragon who lived under the hill mm. and there's oh, yeah. a medieval story of Krakow and the dragon loved eating virgins um, they all do don't they it's, um, it's the whole species yeah and there was only one virgin left after this huge virgin eating rampage that the dragon had been on anyway this poor cobbler filled up a sheepskin with sulfur and salt and then left that outside the dragon's cave. Anyway, the dragon eats it, and it's so full of salt that he feels so thirsty. He drinks so much water, the dragon, that he explodes and dies. And then the cobbler uh, is rewarded by getting married to the king's daughter, who happens to be the last virgin in the city. Okay. Mm. That's the story. Yeah. And, and, and the was... dragon's bones now hang out of the front of Vavel Cathedral, which is in Krakow. It's wow. the big cathedral there. The bones hang from the door. All no the one's bones contesting the dragon. realness of the bones. <laughs> <laughs> some bones, some bones are there. They bones are hanging. They, they're there. quite. I wish they'd study them. So they're not allowed to take them down, right? Because there's this idea that if they fall down, then the world will end immediately. So they're hung up by these chains, which are constantly checked, which is kind of a shame because apparently the bones belong to some creature from the Pleistocene, a mammoth, or maybe a, maybe a whale. And we just won't know because the only way of checking them r involves the world ending, at which point I suppose you can't check the bones. That's it's a real catch-22. Mm. <laughs> They've done an awesome statue of this dragon. It was first put up, I think, in 1972, um, and they decided on to have it breathe fire. Huge, like, like a flamethrower. And it used to do that every five minutes or so, but actually they've started a new service where as you're walking by, you can text the dragon and ask it to breathe fire, <laughs> and it will do it on command. So it can actually go every 15 seconds if it needs to, the 15 second intervals between breathing so fire. Cool. Um, Polish <laughs> leaders of Krakow have had fun names over time, I realise, <laughs> looking into the history of Krakow. I particularly like the 1200s, where the Duke of Krakow was called Tanglefoot. 
Uh, that was in 1210, and he died and was replaced by Spindleshanks. Well, I think there was someone in between. Spindleshanks replaced him. And actually, Spindleshanks ended up getting killed by a German girl that he was trying to sexually assault. So, oh. well done. Uh, well, he, well, she killed him. So, well no, done. No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was a bad start to the story, but, you know, he got his comeuppance. <laughs> it was a happy ending. I thought well, Spindleshanks would have been killed by Voldemort by the sounds of him. <laughs> 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 Their sworn enemy was Henry the Bearded. Tanglefoot and Spindleshanks were on the same side, and then Henry the Bearded was their enemy. Wow. And eventually became Duke of Krakow. Cool. It's I, great. It does sound like a JK Rowling plot, doesn't it? I really like yeah. King Zygmunt the Old uh, because him <laughs> and his wife, Bonna Sforza, um, brought soup vegetables to Poland soup in vegetables. the 16th century. That's what they're famous for. I mean,. Uh- What's James, that? I don't want to quibble, but aren't all vegetables <laughs> soup vegetables? Well, they brought, she was, uh, Bonasforza was Italian. And so they brought a lot of um, vegetables that didn't grow naturally mm. in um, Poland. And they brought them over, but that's what they're famous for. Tomatoes, I suppose. You wouldn't get tomatoes in Poland, but you wouldn't sure. get them in anywhere in Europe. But she brought did them over. Did they market them as soup vegetables? Is that how they got them selling? That's what they're known as now, like Polish soup vegetables, I guess. Um, their daughter was called Anna Jagiellon, and she was the last female ruler of Poland. Uh, and she was basically part of a family where she was like the youngest daughter, and everyone thought that she was like an old kind of spinster who would never get married kind of thing. And then suddenly, everyone else in her family died, and she was going to be the ruler of Poland, and suddenly she became the hottest ticket in town. And um, Ivan the Terrible wanted to marry her, and um, Henri Valois in France wanted to marry her. Everyone wanted to marry her. All the Habsburgs wanted to marry her and stuff. I think this would make a great kind of 1990s teen comedy of, you know, like the overlooked girl suddenly becoming the hottest girl in class kind of thing. Yeah. You'd yeah. need to I think you'd need to rewrite the bit where sort of all her siblings were brutally <laughs> murdered or died in horrible ways for the teen comedy audience. But she's yeah. in the poster, she's surrounded by soup vegetables and she's looking to the camera and going, oh, I like it. Well, she eventually married a Hungarian prince called Bathory, um, but they didn't really get on very well. Um, he refused to learn Polish, and so they spoke through an interpreter for the rest of his life. Uh, and then eventually he died, and um, instead of taking over herself, she pushed her nephew, who was called uh, Sigmund III Vasa, who became actually like one of the great leaders in, in Polish history. There's your sequel. Mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but he was actually the one who moved the capital of Poland away from Krakow to Warsaw, so, you know... Mm-hmm. Thumbs down from this episode. We do the Warsaw episode in a hundred years. Yeah. He's a hero. Oh, by the way, for Americans, you call it Krakow, just in case you've been wondering all this time what we're talking about. But we call it Krakow. Um, Thousands of Americans just going, oh! <laughs> um, everything we've said, they're like, that's so weird. They have that in Krakow as well. <laughs> really weird. I found a thing, which is that America is running out of buglers. And they desperately need them. They need them because in in 2000, at the beginning of 2000, a new law was passed that if you were an army veteran and you had died, you were entitled to a military funeral. And so what they would do is they would have to send out three people to be there present and do a few military um, 
uh, regalia type things, uh, one of which is they would have to play taps on the bugle. Taps being that song. Burr, 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 burr. I'm, I'm murdering that song, but it's, it's you know, the classic American tune. Um, now, the problem is, is they don't have enough buglers to go and play this song. So what they've had to invent is a ceremonial bugle. And the ceremonial bugle has inside it a sound system with the song preloaded. So what you end up having is these people playing the song. But what they're doing is once they press down on one of the buttons, it just plays the song through a speaker system that is at the top of the bugle. And they just pretend that they're playing it because that's the best way in order to commemorate the person who's being buried. Yeah, Dan, I read about it. It's so weird. It seems like it's this little black box that you shove into the end of your bugle and then you just press a button on it and then you just hold the bugle. It's really bizarre. It's quite controversial, isn't it? Because yeah. some people are like, well, surely you should have a proper bugle at a, at a funeral. But then other yeah. people say, well, you know what? If we there is a, is a shortage, like Dan says, so if we don't do this, we're just going to have to have a boombox with playing the tap. So that's mm. going to be even worse. Um, but then the other argument again is that you know when Dan really murdered that tune a few seconds ago, mm. that's kind of part of it. So it's not really supposed to be perfect note for note when you play the taps it's supposed to have emotion in it because the person who's playing it is quite upset and so the the notes are supposed to be slightly off and a bit shaky and stuff like that and you obviously don't get that with a recording mm-hmm. you'll get used to it it's like do you remember when uh, taxi drivers first started using sat nav and it was really disappointing <laughs> and, <I> was out. <laughs> and then you you realize that it's actually fine it is a bit like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're used to being taken three miles around the houses and that's part of the ritual and the tradition. It shows the emotion in the taxi driver that you're being charged an extra tenner because he's not going to ask where, exactly where this, which postcode you're meant to be going to. Yeah. I accidentally cool. researched, you know, the band, uh, The Bugles, who did Video Killed the Radio Star? The Buggles. Exactly. I only realised that about an hour into my research. I spent genuinely an hour looking at every song they did to see if a bugle had ever been played by The Bugles. And... Uh, as far as I could find, it hasn't, but it doesn't matter anyway, because that's not what they're called. Um, but the Buggles did have a, have a member called Trevor Horn, so did get one thing out of it. So it wasn't wasted. Which is still not a wasted hour. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that when the conservationist Amy Dickman booked a dentist appointment in Namibia, she neglected to mention to the dentist that the patient was a leopard. (laughs) (laughs) How did the appointment go? Do we know? It actually went quite well. Yeah, it was a series of appointments in the end, as often happens with the dentist. Um, And this was it was on the BBC website a while back I think and it was an interview with her and she was saying that she works in various African countries with threatened species she was in Namibia and she found a leopard that had got into a farmer's trap because farmers Mm -hmm. trap them to stop them killing their livestock and she saw it had a broken canine so she anaesthetized it and she called the local dentist and just booked an appointment and then she said she arrived and there are obviously lots of people in the waiting room who are frightened (gasps) enough already because they're in a dentist's waiting room and then a leopard gets carried through and apparently the dentist really took to it after a while and she explained it's okay, I've anaesthetised it so it's not going to wake up and eat you. And so the dentist was like, oh, brilliant and they had to make a specially hard tooth for the leopard because obviously they do much more tearing of their food than we do. So he plotted using titanium and steel and silver to make this tooth 
And it was basically okay. Except well, hang for on. a scary moment at the end when it went yeah. up. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big ending. Apart from when it bit a face off. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from everyone died. And that's no, the end was, of my story. No, there, there was a moment was where, a the, moment where yeah. it had to go back for repeated fittings. And on the very last appointment, she said she thinks there was a dodgy anaesthetic. And all these crowds had gathered around to watch at this point because they've got quite a name for themselves for having this leopard in the dentist. So there were crowds of people in the room. The dentist said, I'm pretty sure the leopard just blinked at me. Yeah. And they said, don't be silly, it's anaesthetised. 30 seconds later, it let out a massive roar and then climbed up off the table. She said the crowd, she's never seen a crowd disappear from a room so fast. They sort of just jumped out the windows and stuff. And uh, they had to chase it around and anaesthetise it again, which she then pointed out, I'd only ever really worked on cheetahs, which apparently, who knew, have very prominent veins. So very easy to to vaccinate, to anaesthetise. Difficult to catch, though, the cheetah. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things they had to do as well, so the, the... The um the lion had got up and uh, sorry the leopard had got up and it was walking around, and the the dentist was too freaked out and didn't want to help with the grappling of it and they were all freaking out and some of them ran out onto the road and by chance the vet was walking down the road and they're like vet get here now and the vet was like what's up like, we've got a leopard that's awake and he ran in and helped hold down the leopard and they they reanesthetized it but like just total coincidence as they ran out that this guy was just probably going to the shops. Yeah. And suddenly there you was wouldn't a believe it crisis. in a film. You'd be like, "What are the chances he's walking by at that moment?" Not realistic. Yeah. I think anaesthetizing the animals is one of the main problems of these kind of veterinary dentists, isn't it? Because you know, anaesthetizing animals is just a difficult thing to do. I was reading about one in 2004, which was a jaguar called Hibalba, uh, who needed five root canals, and um, they gave it anaesthetic. Um, but unfortunately, the Jaguar went into cardiac arrest and stopped breathing because it reacted badly to the anesthesia. Uh, and so the dentist, who was called Namiak, said that they tried a quick yank on the cat's testicles and he was awake, just like that. Uh, <laughs> and the Jaguar completely recovered. That's Yeah, dentists do that. That's normal, isn't it? What, yank on your bollocks, do they? Yeah, yeah you, um, you swallow, you rinse, you spit, the dentist gives you a quick yank down there, and then you go. So you get the sticker, sticker, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I have my testicles yanked by Mr. <laughs> Smithson. <laughs> it seems like you have to have nerves of steel to go into this kind of dentistry, the animal world dentistry. I was reading about a guy called Peter Emily. He's 82 years old and he's a pioneer in this territory. He says that he's operated basically on everything with a mouth. So he's done kangaroos, <laughs> he's done ferrets, he did Siegfried Roy's He's done tigers. a river. <laughs> <laughs> and in this article, he was operating on a lion's head. So you can imagine if that lion wakes up, it's going to be terrifying. While he was operating on the lion's mouth... Can we just say that as a dentist, most of the work he does is head-based? Oh, yes, true. What my point of saying that though is at the very same time, someone was down at the other end removing the lion's testicles. So it was <laughs> it's a scary procedure. Yeah. If he woke up, that's one pissed off line. And then as he's doing that procedure, they bring in next to him a black leopard, which is just laying perpendicular on the table next to this lion. So he's just surrounded in animals that oh if waking up, I ask, would just rip his head off. Why did they decide to take the testicles and the teeth out at the same time? It's a two for one offer. Um, My dentist had one of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have to say, no complaints. Say, ah. (laughs) Ah! 
in this case, they were they were using them to um, grow stem cells. So it was two different things happening from two different people. Oh. It wasn't, yeah, in order to help out with a tooth. I guess if anesthetizing is hard, which it is, and I guess you don't want to do it too often. So I suppose you sort of take what chances you get while you've got a knocked out lion. So there was a guy, a zoo dentist in the UK called Peter, another Peter, actually, Peter Katej of Paynton Zoo. He is, again, one of the only zoo dentists in the world. And in 2008, he did an operation on a gorilla at Paynton Zoo. And it it took about 10 people to remove the gorilla's tooth because you've got people positioning the gorilla, you've got people monitoring the anaesthetics, you've got all sorts of activity happening around. And there's this huge, you know, 300-pound gorilla sitting in the chair, completely dead to the world, and he's having to operate on it. And he said, Peter Peter Katesh was interviewed, and he said, people often ask me if it is fun working on gorillas and tigers. It certainly is not fun. It is very hard and serious work. Wow. Oh, what a killjoy. <laughs> he's having fun. Imagine sat next to him at a wedding. Yeah. Oh, tell us about the gorilla. It's not fun. <laughs> oh my god, what a cool job! Wow, it's actually horrible. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Um, um, in terms of dentistry, it's not even just the teeth that they have to deal with. So um, this guy that I was talking about, Peter Emily, he also works on bird beaks as well, and mm-hmm. he's pioneered a speciality which he calls orthobeakics okay. and beak braces, right? I think he's the guy who does bird braces for beaks. If you've got, Ooh. I think the condition is called scissor beak, technically. As in, you know, when you get a faulty pair of scissors and the, you can imagine the two bits, not a faulty pair of scissors, sorry, a functioning pair of scissors, but the two bits don't crash into each other mm. like a beak should. They slide over each other. And so that's what scissor beak is. Um, so he has braces for birds that they have to wear and eventually it wrenches them back into place. But they do get bullied at school. <laughs> Can I just say, if it's a crossbill, they're supposed to be like that. <laughs> oh, no. Do you think he's ruined loads of crossbills? They're just yeah. called Bill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, rats, if anyone has a pet, pet rat, uh, they sometimes perform dentistry on their owners. Oh, And this is a thing that people let them do. So I, I find rats quite gross. Uh, as I think a lot of us do, but what they like to do is inspect each other's teeth for spare food. So they often get food stuck in their teeth and their mate will have, you know, a bit of dairy milk stuck in its tooth, so they'll go and lick the food off. And (laughs) if you own a rat and you show it your teeth, it will lick between your teeth and lick the food out, and who needs a toothpick when you've got a pet rat? And people have been doing this. I mean, how many... Is is this a common... I have a friend who had a pet rat. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you who it is because you know them. I don't think that they will have done that. What you're you saying, James, ask. is that is this is this rare enough that we can make fun of it and shame the people who do it, or is it very common and we should be careful? Is it so common that I need to rethink my friend group? <laughs> they also have rank teeth anyway, rats. Sorry, no offence to rats, but they grow faster than human nails, so they have to be constantly gnawing, so you need to give them stuff to chew all the time. And they grow in spirals at an 85-degree angle, so if their teeth come out there mouths and they don't gnaw enough then they grow in this big spiral and when they're chewing the masseter muscle which is the muscle that controls their jaw is positioned behind their eyeballs so if you watch videos of rats chewing they do a thing called boggling at the same time which is when their eyes that's dan's favorite band isn't it the boggles (laughs) 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 sorry what did that what is a boggling sorry anna 
<laughs> it's not. It's what you think. Their eyes pop in and out of their heads Whoa. as they chew. Can I, I give know. you guys a fact about just general dentistry? Mm. You know how we all love uh, nominative determinism? Yeah. Well, I have got off it a little bit, I have to say, after reading this fact, and I think that it might not be true, um, because I read that the first woman to qualify as a dentist in England was called Miss Fanny Payne. And I think if nominative <laughs> determinism was real, she would have been a gynecologist. <laughs> yeah. Fanny yeah, There Payne? should be something called nominative anti-determinism or something, where they've gone yes. the wrong way. Um, so she um, qualified in 1914. There were um, there were a few dentists before her because a few people qualified in Scotland before that, uh, female dentists, I should say. But like in the 19th century, really, you only had male dentists. Uh, and then there was Fanny Payne uh, and there was another woman called Lillian Lindsay um, who became the first um, female to qualify as a dentist in the whole UK because she did hers in, in Scotland. Uh, and it was so looked down upon um, that when she tried to join the National Dental Hospital in Great Portland Street, um, the dean, who was called Harry Vice, Harry, 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 <laughs> Harry Vice, Harry Vice. Yeah, that's what causes the fanny pain. Isn't it? <laughs> he was called Harry Vice, Harry Weiss, Harry Vice, and he refused to admit her because she was a woman. And then when she really insisted, um, he would only interview her on the pavement outside the school because he didn't want her to distract all the other dentists who were inside. Wow. Uh, but yeah, Gosh. eventually they did. And now I think um, it's more than 50% of dentists in Europe, I think, are women. Um, um, people are trying home dentistry now. Are they? And are being advised not to. So Is this a coronavirus it. thing? Yep. The Economist reported on various dentists saying that they're very worried because a lot of their patients are saying they're doing things like uh, using needles to burst their own abscesses <clears> uh, in their mouths. They're using knives and forks to take their teeth out and nail files to cut down broken teeth. Oh my word. I've actually been doing this myself at home and it's a real nightmare because I've been having to yank on my own testicles when I've finished. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. James? At James Harkin. And Anna? You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com, and check out all of our previous episodes, as well as links to bits of our merchandise. Um, that's it. We will be back again with another episode. We'll see you then, guys. Goodbye. <laughs>